Ephesians chapter 6, Justin read to us these four verses where we will start at least today, and you have an outline in your bulletin that takes us to a few other passages as well. I chose, of course, Ephesians 6 in these first few verses because this is uh, one of the few places in the Bible where you have the word mother and father in the same place. <laughs> so since this is a combination of Mother's and Father's Day, uh, verse 2 says, Honor thy father and mother. And in verse 1, calls them both parents, which is a lesson that would be good for folks to learn today. And children are uh, children of parents, of mothers and fathers. So we have children, we have the word parents, we have the word father, we have the word mother, and all through chapter 5 leading up to this, we have the word husband and wife and uh, how they are toward one another. Uh, this is called, uh, in today's terminology, the nuclear family, you know. I thought, well, that's kind of interesting. I wonder why the nuclear family, you know. But it's been called that for quite a long time now. It means conjugal or married couple uh, of uh, one man, one woman, and children, uh, the nuclear family, though uh, some have plans to change that. Uh, but, you know, in... Uh, in the 2008, uh, I had this little note. The Science Daily uh, paper found this, quote, DNA extracted from bones and teeth in a 4,600-year-old Stone Age burial ground in Germany has provided the earliest evidence for the nuclear family as a social structure. So there you go. 4,600 years, years ago, uh, they said we had the nuclear family. They didn't even know the word nuclear then. As a matter of fact, biblically, 4,600 years ago would be about the time of Noah and his wife and their three sons and their wives. So guess what? Noah didn't know he was part of the nuclear family, did he? But he is. And it's been around a long time. Well, let me tell you, uh, that coincides with what we call the biblical family. Remember the Lord's words in Matthew 19. Have you not read that he which made them in the beginning made them male and female, and said, For this cause shall a man leave father and mother, and shall cleave unto his wife, and they too shall be one flesh. Therefore there are no more two but one flesh." What therefore God hath joined together, let not man put asunder. And so that is also the family that Jesus described. As a little aside here, let me, and I, and I think I should mention, that uh, something uh, unique but unfortunate happened this week. You know, it was in 1964 that uh, our government enacted the Civil Rights Act, which was needed and it was good. And I'm glad it happened, and it corrected some faults that needed to be corrected in our country. The, the Civil Rights Act then was paragraphed under what they call titles. And so paragraph 7 is Title 7, which deals with the word uh, sex, because the, the Civil Rights Act said that discrimination cannot take place on the basis of race, color, religion, or sex. And so in Title VII, or Paragraph Seven, they defined sex as specifically meaning a woman. You can't uh, discriminate on the basis of male and female, and use also the word mother. 
Well, that's okay. Uh, there are certain discriminations that needed to be taken care of at that time also. Well, in 2014, the then Attorney General Eric Holder issued a memorandum. That's a long word for a memo. <laughs> and he said that the word sex in Title VII also included all transgender identities as well. Well, that was debated, but uh, uh, in 2017, in the Trump administration, the Attorney General then canceled that memorandum and said, no, the word sex in Title VII does not mean transgender. Well, then the liberals were upset, and so it, it, it uh, was placed in court and finally went to the Supreme Court where this week, last Monday to be specific, our Supreme Court ruled that yes, the word sex in Title VII does include all transgender identities as well as LGBTQ+, which means that then all of those who identify in any of those ways have the same right as the Civil Rights Act of 1964 as far as discrimination goes. Now under that also is the word religion and in the initial uh, Civil Rights Act, religion has an exception clause, and that is as churches or as Christian uh, colleges, universities, even Christian schools are exempt as long as that's written into their identity and, and their uh, doctrinal statement. And so for now, there's that exemption that applies to us or to Christian schools and so forth. But, of course, the problem there is, depending on who's in office, that can be changed with another memo, which means an unelected official writes a memo and calls it a memorandum, and it then uh, could eliminate even the exception. It may go back to the Supreme Court, but who knows how they're going to rule again. Now, I only say that because as a pastor of a church, I'm concerned, of course, with that, because here in one ruling, even our Supreme Court basically has undermined what has been for 4,600 years the nuclear family, 6,400 years, I mean, the nuclear family, one man, one woman, and their children. Now, I ask you this, if a constitution that's 200 years old can re be redefined simply by an office memo that changes the meaning of the words, can the same thing apply to a Bible that's 2,000 years old? Can we simply say what the Bible used to mean doesn't mean that anymore? Well, I tell you, yes, they can, and many are doing it. But the question is, can God do that? And the answer is no. Heaven and earth may pass away, God said, my word shall not pass away. And so what God has said is what God has said. And if Jesus said what I read to you a minute ago, 2,000 years ago, that is still the family, a father and a mother uh, that have children and stand before God uh, with their vows. And I'm thankful for that. I'm thankful then that we can talk today about the family. We can talk about fathers and mothers. We can talk about children and do this with confidence that this is what God wants if we are true to his word and read what is in his word. And we as God's people then are the salt and light of this earth in an age 
that would like to change everything, and we need to be testimonies for the Word of God. Well, let me take you back to our verse, verses, these four, first four verses of Ephesians chapter 6. And uh, again, let me uh, point out that even children are to obey these parents, the mothers and the fathers, and the fathers and the mothers uh, are not to provoke their children to wrath. The word is fathers in uh, verse 4. So parents equal mothers and fathers there, by the way, a very important equation by God in these verses. Uh, defined himself, parents from verse 1 means father and mother in verse 2. Now, here's what I've done this morning, and you look at your outline in your bulletin and you say, man, uh, you, you must, this must have been late at night when you made this outline. Well, here's what I've done. You know, the word fathers appears quite a few times in the Bible, but I'm taking New Testament references. But often the Bible re refer to the faith of our fathers or the God of our fathers in, in a generic way. But then there are those times where our New Testament uses the word father in a specific way relating to the family, relating to his family. And so I want to look at a few of those verses this morning. And then the same thing is true of the word mother, although fewer times because the word father is much more common in the scripture than the word mother. But there are a few of those places where the Bible refers to mothers specifically related to the family, the mother and her, her family. And so we want to take some principles for those and apply them to mothers and fathers today, if you will. So we start in, in verse 1, but uh, the first one actually applies to children as it relates to their father and mother, and that is children are to obey and honor their parents, right? Verse 1 says to obey, and uh, verse uh, 2 says to honor. The word obey it's a combination of two words, which means to hear under, hupo and akuo, acoustics, to hear under. That means place yourself under the authority in your home and listen to them. The word honor comes from Timmy. We get the word Timothy or Tim, the name Timmy from that, which means to give value or to revere something. And so to honor means to revere your parents. Now, the unique thing about this, as Paul says in verse 2, honoring your father and mother is the first commandment with promise. You remember the Ten Commandments, right? You remember, don't you, Exodus chapter 20? And the fifth commandment, the, be, the beginning of the second book, that is the first four commandments apply to you and God, and the next six apply to you and your fellow person, fellow man on earth, so Exodus 20, verse 12 says, Honor thy father and thy mother, that thy days may be long upon the land which the Lord thy God giveth thee. It, it, actually, it's unique in that it's the only promise given specifically to children. And so children have their own command. And what is that command? It's the only one that has this promise in it, that if you want your days to be long and you want to have a good long life, uh, then honor your parents, honor your father and mother. You know, someone says, how can, how can I, as a, as a child, maybe five years old, maybe 15 years old, or somewhere still under your father and mother's roof and under their uh, uh, support and so forth, how can I serve God? Let me tell you the number one way in Scripture 
for someone who's still under their parents is to honor them. There's no better way to serve God as a child, as a teenager, as a young adult than to honor or obey your parents because what does it say at the end of verse 1? For this is right. And who says that? God says that. This is right. I remind you that Jesus, when he was uh, young, we don't have a lot of information between when he was born and the baby and the manger and all of that scene, and when he comes into his own at age about 30 and begins his ministry. We, we have one account of him at 12 years old, right? So we don't know a whole lot about those years when he lived under his mother and father in the carpenter shop in Nazareth, except that Luke records for us that uh, when all of the things around his birth and, and all of that were completed, they went back to Nazareth, and Luke says in Luke 2.51, he was subject unto them. The Lord himself, in those years that he was in their home, was subject unto them. That is God's will, and that's the example of our Lord himself even. There's another interesting expression in the New Testament, and that's the expression disobedient to parents. <laughs> and you know what? That expression appears two times in our New Testament, being disobedient to parents. Let me tell you what those are. The first one is at the beginning of the age of grace, and the second one is at the end of the age of grace. So in Romans chapter 1, where you have Paul dealing with the worst sins in the Roman Empire, homosexuality and bestiality and all of those things, all the way down to a list finally. As a matter of fact, I'm going to turn back there. You, you don't have to. But in, in Romans chapter 1, he gets to the end and he says then, here are the sins that were in the first century in the Roman Empire, filled with all unrighteousness, fornication, wickedness, covetousness, maliciousness, full of envy, murder, debate, deceit, malignity, whisperers, backbiters, haters of God, despiteful, proud, boasters, inventors of evil things. And you know what the next one is? Disobedient to parents. You would think, how did that get in that list? Disobedient to parents. Because it's serious with God. Because it was part of the first commandment with promise. Then... The other place where this expression is found is 2 Timothy chapter 3, where Paul is saying, Know this, that in the last days perilous times shall come. Men shall be lovers of their own selves, covetous, boasters, proud, blasphemers, disobedient to parents, unthankful and unholy. And so isn't it interesting that this expression being disobedient to parents is at the first of the age of grace and accelerates to the end of the age of grace and will always be with us and something we always have to be careful about. So I just say to our young people, to our children, you want to serve God in your life right now? Obey and honor your parents. Secondly, in the same text, I'm back to Ephesians 6, and verse 4 says, fathers, provoke not your children to wrath. So here's one of the places where fathers is mentioned. Now, fathers here probably could, could include fathers and mothers, in other words, parents. But the word father, as the head of the home, and usually the one who is, is in charge of discipline in the home, 
Don't provoke your children to wrath. Because when you do, you're causing them to disobey the fifth commandment, which God has for them to honor Father and obey. And when you provoke them to wrath, in other words, you, you provoke them to a place where they're rebellious, then you've helped them in, at least to disobey the very commandment. That we must be very careful of as, as fathers and as mothers. The rabbi said one time, give me a child until he's 12 and I don't care who else has him the rest of his life. Because those formative years, in those early years when they learn to honor and obey their parents, so fathers, don't, don't spoil that time. I, may, I, I think I've probably told you this little story before, but th this week uh, we're going to have our uh, kids with us. That is Matthew and, and, and uh, Tara and the three kids, two, boy, two of their boys, seven and five, eight and six. I don't know. I can't keep track with all my grandkids anymore. But uh, they are on their way back to Minnesota, but they're going to be with us a few days. And uh, they're buying a house. And for the first time, they're going to have lawn to mow. And the boys want to mow lawn. So they've already told me, Grandpa, we want to mow lawn when we get to your house. Okay. I'm, I'm ready for them. <laughs> I've, got, I've got the mower already. Well, it reminds me of this story, which I, I think I've told before, that when my two boys were young, Michael, being the older one, finally came to the age where he could mow grass. And so, I, you know, I mowed the grass up to then, of course. And, boy, I had it perfect. I had every corner. I had all the dan no dandelions in my yard. You know, the edges were done just right. Everything was perfect. So, Michael, here's the mower. Here's how you do it. Don't mess up. Michael goes out there and mows for the first time. I mean, he leaves a row over here. He misses the corner over there. The, weed, the big weed's still standing out there. And so I give Michael a lecture about how to mow grass. And by the time I'm done, he's crying. He's got tears in his eyes because he didn't mow grass the way Dad wanted him to mow grass. And to this day, Michael hates to mow grass. <laughs> And now he's got his own son to deal with, but he hates to mow grass. So my second son, Matthew, gets to that age, and uh, I remember the mistake I made. And I want him to do it right. I explained what to do, but I said, here's the mower, do it. He missed this row. He missed that corner. He missed that weed and everything, and he got done. I said, great job, Matthew. And next time, you can do it again. <laughs> and you know what? By about the third or fourth time he mowed, he got pretty good. And then one time we went to a Rockies baseball game. This was in Denver. And uh, you know how when you walk into those beautiful baseball fields, they have that outfield just mowed perfectly. And they do it with a design. And they happened to have a design this time. Instead of crisscrossing, they did a circle design in the outfield. It was kind of amazing. Well, I hadn't thought about that. Matthew and Michael were both with us. And so the next time Matthew got home to mow the grass, after he was done, I looked out the front window, and guess what the front yard looked like? <laughs> A corkscrew design in the front yard. He loves it. Well, he's bringing his two boys to my house, so we're going to see what happens when, the <laughs> when they begin to mow grass. But you get the idea. You know, we provoke to the point where it encourages disobedience and tired of obeying and tired of doing the one thing that God has asked them to do, and that's honor and obey parents. So fathers, don't provoke your children to wrath and get them to the place for the rest of their lives. And by the way, 
what is the command here? Bring them up in the what? Nurture and admonition of the Lord. That's what's important. Not just how to mow grass, but how to serve God and how to pray and how to worship and how to walk with the Lord. So don't provoke your children to wrath. Now, uh, number three, I have fathers are to train their children. And we have math, uh, excuse me, Philippians 2.22. So here's a verse, for example, it's not far away here in Philippians, where Paul is talking about Timothy, who he regards as his spiritual son. Know the proof of him, that as a father with, or excuse me, as a son with the father, he has served with me in the gospel. As a son with the father. In other words, I've trained him. This is kind of like an apprenticeship. This is a son that works under the father's business for a while and learns the business and then goes out and does it on his own. Just like that, that's how I've trained Timothy. As a, as a father would train a son. And so the idea here is, the admonition, of course, to, uh, to us as fathers is to be uh, a trainer and let your child, your son, be in, a, in an apprenticeship to us. Now, you remember these verses, don't you? Train up a child in the way he should go when he's old and not depart from it. As one scholar said, these are truisms. It's not that a child will never disobey and never go astray because even children are free moral agents before God. But these are truisms in the sense that you're not going to do it without this. You're, you're not going to expect him to walk with the Lord without training. And so you need to train him so that when he's older, he will do these things. Or remember uh, uh, in uh, Psalm 71, 18, where the psalmist says, Now also when I am old and gray-headed, I wonder when that will be, O oh God, forsake me not until I have showed thy strength to this generation and thy power to every generation that's to come. Let me, when I have gray hair or no hair, as the case may be, still train. Even grandfathers and great-grandfathers. Or we have in 1 Thessalonians 2.18, Paul says to that church, You know how we exhorted and comforted and charged every one of you as a father does his children. That's how we are to train our children. And so... We should be doing it. Now, now, you know, I lived under a dad who was a professor, and he was a teacher, but uh, he loved mechanical things, and he was always training us in those. But I think back to the little things that you learn from a dad as he's just kind of showing you how to do it. You know, uh, he, he was such a mechanic that he never squealed tires on a car or anything else. And if ever he saw it, he would say, that just cost him money. <laughs> See that rubber streak on the pavement? That's money lying there on the pavement. To the point that when, when I would come in our gravel driveway on my bicycle, if I put on the brakes real hard and slid on the gravel, he'd say, uh-uh. <laughs> you know, I, lear I learned about that, you know. I, I remember uh, that he would, back in the days where he grew up in the rural part of Iowa where they had railroad tracks without lights and without 
warnings. And so every time he would come to a railroad track, he would almost come to a stop, have the window rolled down because he's listening to see if he hears a train, then he'd go across. Now, I don't do that every time, but I tell you, I check every railroad both ways when I do it because my dad did. That's why. I'll tell you even a funnier one if it don't take too much time. Uh, he taught automotives, and I took a class where we rebuilt engines in automotives class. I, we did this in high school, uh, though he was a college professor. And so we're putting the piston into the cylinder and attaching it to the crankshaft, which goes around like this, and the piston goes up and down. You don't think about this, do you? And while we're putting this together, he says, you know, uh, on your tachometer on the dashboard, uh, it, you can get this thing up to 3,600 RPMs. Okay. You know, how, you know how many times 3,600 RPMs is per second? No, 60. Which means this piston is going to go up and down 60 times in a second. He says, take your finger and go up and down like this 60 times in one second. I'll time you. I couldn't do it, of course. And so he's saying that's why pistons come through the top of engines sometimes when people rev them up to all these RPMs. So I tell you what, folks, to this day, if I have a tachometer in my car, it gets anywhere near 3,600. I slow down. I, you know, I, I can't go any faster than that because I'm thinking what Dad said that day in that shop. Now, what am I saying? I'm just saying see how fathers affect us in everything they do all through our lives. They train us as a father doth a son, as if he were his apprentice, but do it in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. Fourthly, in 1 Timothy 5.1, we find that fathers should be given respect even as an elder and even because he's an elder. So in 1 Timothy 5.1, rebuke not an elder, but entreat him as a father and the younger men as brother. Well, an elder here may refer to the office of a church or it may refer just to an older man. But the point is, treat an elder like you would your father and treat your father like you would an elder of the church. Give him due respect. He deserves respect. Remember Proverbs 17:6, children's children are the crown of old men and the glory of children are their fathers. Or Leviticus 19.32, Thou shalt rise up before the gray head and honor the face of the old man. Boy, is this something that we have lost even in our culture today, that we are to give honor to our older people, to anyone older than you. You, you know those kids that grew up in the South, and every time you ask them something, they say, Yes, sir, <laughs> or no, sir, yes, ma'am, no, ma'am. You know, that's good. Uh, sometimes that's a hard habit to break. I, I know that growing up around pastors and older men and teachers that I had and everything, I know they had first names, but to this day I can't say their first name. Some of them are dead and gone. Some of them I'm almost their age, and I just still have to say Mr. So-and-so, Reverend So-and-so, Brother So-and-so. I can't say their first name because it wasn't a thing of honor to my generation to do that. And so discipline your children. Now, uh, number five, excuse me, discipline your children. Fathers, discipline your children. So in Hebrews 12, 7, if you endure chastening, God dealeth with you as with sons. 
For what son is he whom the father does not chasten? A father is to discipline in the home. It is a job before God. I have this story of of one author I was reading not long ago, and I took his son away to to discipline him, and he said, uh, you know what I have to do, don't you? child says, yes. What do I have to do? You have to spank me. (laughs) Why? Because I didn't do what I was supposed to do before God. And what if I don't spank you? And the child says, then you're not doing what you're supposed to do before God. (laughs) The, the father is a discipliner in the home. Now, the word chastisement sounds like a, a pretty harsh word to us, but it comes from the word paideia in Scripture, paideia, which means child training. And so it is positive and negative. Child training is both the positive and the negative, and you're supposed to do it. As a matter of fact, then we have an English word which means all of the child training encyclopedia. From A to Z, encyclopedia means the training, everything you look up A, it's in the first volume, right? You look up Z, it's in the last volume, an encyclopedia. That's how we're to train our children and discipline them and train them both with negative and positive uh, input all of the time. You know, I know that there's this verse in Proverbs 23, do not withhold correction from a child for if you beat him with a rod, he will not die. If you beat him with a rod and deliver you, you will beat him with a rod and deliver his soul from hell. Now, the translators, when they use the word "beat," uh, you know, may have had a little different view than what some people have today. But I like Robert Alden, an Old Testament professor at Denver Seminary, said. He said in verses thirteen and fourteen, like other child discipline verses, they do encourage spanking. Children may think they're going to die from such treatment, but the paddling should produce just the opposite effect. Discipline will save children by forcing out of them the very foolishness that may lead them to an early grave. Because he points out that the word in verse 14 is Sheol, from hell itself. And that's what you're saving them from. When you discipline them, I'm not, uh, of course, encouraging beating of a child. Don't take that old word that way. It simply means to discipline. And spanking is fine. God created a very nice spot on your body for that to take place. And so he did it to where uh, it can be done without hurting the child, even though they scream like they're going to die, and I used to too, and that's, you know, I understand. All right, one last thing, and that is. Number six, fathers should walk with God then. And here I go to 1 John 2.13 where we had the word fathers. And twice John says in 1 John 2, I write unto you fathers because you have known him who is from the beginning. Then he'll speak to young men. Then he'll speak to children. But fathers, you walk with God. You have known him who is as the newer translations correctly put it, who is from the beginning. You know God. You know him. You know who he is. Jeremiah, in Jeremiah chapter 5, in the days when Jerusalem was being ransacked by the Babylonians and they were being hauled off to Babylon, Jeremiah cried out and said this, I will get me unto the great men. And will speak unto them, for they have known the way of the Lord and the judgment of their God. 
I'll go to the older man. I'll go to the fathers because he has known him from the beginning. He knows the way of the Lord. Can your children come to you like that and say, Dad, I need to know what's happening here? I hope that's true, and I hope it happens to you the rest of your life. One of the best books that I read this year was by Judge Clarence Thomas. And uh, the, his book is called uh, My Grandfather's Son. But he means himself because he was raised by his grandfather. He never really knew his father uh, much at all. His grandfather took him and grandmother, and they took him and his brother, and they raised them uh, and made them work. His father then uh, moved out to their little farm, put him to work. Uh, he, they hauled uh, oil to, uh, for, the, uh, for the furnaces or people had around town. This was in South Georgia. And so Thomas will say this, I am my grandfather's son. I even called him daddy because that was what mother called him. His friends called him Mike. He was dark, strong, proud, and determined to mold me in his image. For a time, I rejected what he taught me, but even then, I still yearned for his approval. He was the one hero of my life. What I am is what he made me. Isn't that something for Judge Thomas to say? And this book is full of great anecdotes. One of them is his father was a believer. His father believed the Bible, and his father said, Genesis 3 says that when man sinned, God consigned him to work. He said from sun to sun, from the time the sun came up till the time it came down. So we're going to work. And, and Thomas will say, I, it just, you know, I never saw such work. And so he says, one day I said to dad, dad, slavery is over, you know. And he said, dad looked at me and said, not in my house. <laughs> he said his his mother had chores for his grandmother, really, had chores for him to do. And one day, out on a hot Georgia uh, day, on the pavement, they were walking to, to go somewhere. Uh, he complained about having to do this. And so she spit on the road and said, you have this chore done before that spit dries. <laughs> and that was his time frame. And yet he says at the end of the life, I was the beneficiary of all of this, whether I appreciated it at the time or not. Okay, so fathers, provoke not your children to wrath. Train them up in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. Mothers, father is the word pater, mother is the word mater. Uh, and we say alma mater, uh, you know, we, we mean virgin mother when we say alma mater. Mater meaning mother. Now, this word appears a lot in the Bible from, simply from the expression a mother's womb because obviously, you know, uh, so-and-so from his mother's womb or this was true from the mother's womb. And so that's not speaking so much of the family, but that expression is in the Bible, even the New Testament, a lot. Although a good lesson for our generation to learn is this, and that is children come only from a mother's womb and... Only women can bear children. No matter what operation you may call it or what you may call yourself these days, that is the way God made it, and that's the only way it can be. And it is from the mother's womb. But here are three references that I think speak to moms that should be taken seriously. And one is, we go, I go back to the life of Christ in John 6:42. Mothers should be known for child rearing. Is not this Jesus, his critics said, 
the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know? They had a carpenter shop, right? She was, we know Mary. This is Mary's son. We know who this is. And they were roundly criticizing uh, him, of course. Well, Psalm 180, uh, 128 says, Your wife shall be like a fruitful vine in the very heart of your house, or by the sides of your house, one version. Your children like olive plants round about your table. The wife is a, is a vine that bears fruit in the very heart of the home. Proverbs 31, the, the great chapter on the Proverbs 31 woman, she watches over the ways of her household and does not eat the bread of idleness. Her children rise up and call her blessed, her husband also, and he praises her. Or Proverbs 14, 1, every wise woman buildeth her house, but the foolish plucketh it down with their hands. And so here's the, the picture of the mother who builds her home and her children and raises them also in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. You know, on Mother's Day, even when we were just videoing, I wore that white carnation because I always do that in memory of my mother who passed away in 2001. My mother was born in 1921 in a white-framed house in Buffalo, Missouri, in Dallas County. And uh, yet she grew up to have a, a, an M.A. in uh, music or a B.A. in music and an M.A. in English from Southwest Missouri State, used to be Teachers College. She raised four kids, and all of us now are within a few years of celebrating uh, our 50th uh, wedding anniversary and still married uh, to uh, our spouses. And uh, she was a teacher, an English teacher. I had her for English in school. You know I've told that story before. Uh, you know, she would send my letters home back with corrections, you know. It was good for me, but I didn't like it at the time. But, but ma, uh, one little story, ma, mom's, mom's um, uh, office was the couch. And her counseling place for her kids was the couch. Let's sit down and talk about this. We sat down on the couch. I remember one time when I came in late one night, and I thought I could sneak by the front door and go down the steps to my room. And I got just across the hall and I heard a voice said, we'll talk about it in the morning, which I knew meant the couch. But on one time, I was in my early teen years and I was starting to go to church a little more. And I became very burdened about my salvation. I wasn't sure whether I was saved and I was truly born again at 11 years old. So mom says, let's sit down and talk about it. We sat down on the couch. And I explained the feelings I had. And I was, you know how that is. If you've ever doubted your salvation at any time in your life, it's just an agonizing time in your life. And so I'm explaining this to her. And mom just looks at me and says, you know, knowing you and knowing your life, I have no doubt in my mind that you are a born-again Christian. Now, that's not chapter and verse. <laughs> But I tell you the truth, I have never doubted my salvation to this point because of what she said. Isn't that something? The influence a mother has when she speaks from a biblical point of view. And she did. So mothers are known for child rearing. Number two, mothers should teach their children about salvation. And so you know these verses, right, from 2 Timothy chapter 1 and chapter 3, where Paul is talking about Timothy's home. And he says, I, when I call to remembrance the genuine faith that is in you, which first dwelt in your grandmother Lois 
and your mother Eunice, and now I'm persuaded in you also. Grandma, mom, down to you. And then in, in chapter 3, verse 15, that, that from a child you have known the holy scriptures which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith that is in Christ Jesus. Mothers are almost always the primary teacher of salvation to those little ones. She spends time with them. If a mother has, has the benefit of staying home in those early years, then think of all the training she's giving that little child and teaching them to the place that I think when that child comes to four or five years old to an age of accountability, you, you almost cannot keep that little child from being saved because of what they believe, much less do you have to persuade them. Someone said this, the top priority job of a parent is to be the evangelist in the home your number one responsibility. Well, I wrote these five things down in a syllabus that I have and uh, in a thing that, that I teach at seminars about leading children to Christ. And I think it's something that parents are letting go by without paying attention to it. And young parents need to pay attention to this. Number one, moms, know when a child comes to the age of accountability. Do you understand when that child is at that point where they know that what, what being saved is. Number two, realize the advantage of a Christian home environment. Do you realize what they have learned and what you've been teaching in Bible stories and, and, and verses and memorization for the last five years? Do you realize what an advantage that is for a little mind to soak in that kind of information? Number three, avoid cliches and magic formulas. In other words, a, a child doesn't get saved by just simply repeating a magic formula. It has to be in their heart, and you have to see that there. Number four, know the irreducible minimum of salvation. What is it that a child needs to understand and know and accept in order to be saved? The same thing that an adult does, but the irreducible minimum is who Jesus is and what he did. Who he is, what he did for you, and do you accept that? And number five, welcome the joy of young testimonies. I think here of how a little child will come, and I'm thinking of one of my little uh, grandson, uh, in uh, was was little then, not little anymore. In uh, in Alaska, and he came to mom just tears in one day and said, "I don't want my sin anymore." <laughs> just in a little child's language, I don't want my sin anymore. Do you understand when that time comes? And the innocent prayer of a child just to ask Jesus to save them, and then the smile of relief that comes to a little child when they know they've been saved. All of these things are our responsibility, and I say to moms how much of that falls to you. Number three, mothers should be treated with respect and purity. So in 1 Timothy chapter 5, where we had before, do not rebuke an older man, exhort him as a father, younger men as brothers, older women as mothers, younger women as sisters, and do it with all purity. Older women as mothers who should be treated with all purity. Proverbs 1, 8 and 9, My son, hear the instruction of thy father, and forsake not the law of thy mother. For it shall be an ornament of grace unto thy head, and chains about thy neck. Titus 2, 3 and 4, Older women, likewise, that they be reverent in behavior, not slanderers. 
verse 4, that they admonished the young women to love their husbands and their children. And Proverbs 12, 4, a virtuous woman is the crown of her husband and to her children. A virtuous woman, one that is to be treated with all purity. I don't know about you, but in, in, uh, in good homes and in a home I was raised in, talking back, disobedient, or one off-colored word toward my mother brought the wrath upon me, and rightfully so. You don't do that to your mother. In 1 Timothy 5 also, and down in verse 4, in the older version, it has children, requit your parents. It doesn't mean quit. <laughs> requit is an old word for repay. So repay them for what they have done for you. She carried you for nine months. She went to death's door to bring you into this life. She has stayed up nights. She has helped you. She has done all of this. Repay them with honor and respect the way it should be. All right. Those are places where the words father and mother are used in the scripture. There are two divine institutions in our country right now that God will use to turn this country back to himself or it will not be turned back to himself. Number one is the family. The family is made up of fathers and mothers and children. And number two is the church that is made up of families. And so as these families grow and do these principles, and then we as a church and churches all over this country, around the world, live these principles out where we live and where we work and so forth, then God can use these things to bless a country and to bless a generation, and I hope that he will. And I hope that these two are ways that you can stand for righteousness in the day in which you live. Stand with me, if you will, as we stand and think about these things on Father's Day and remembering mothers also. Let's ask God to bless these to our hearts. Let's pray together. Now, Father, every time we think about this, these subjects of our parents, fathers and mothers, and children. And Father, our, our heart can be both thankful and sometimes grateful. Sometimes we're disappointed even in ourselves, and sometimes we're heartbroken. But Father, we know your word doesn't change, and in it are principles to live by that are true and will produce blessing. So, Father, help us as we think about these things. Fathers that are here, grandfathers, mothers and grandmothers, as they think about the generations coming behind them, oh, while I'm gray-headed, let me not die till I teach these things to the children's children. And, Father, then to, to children that are here or hear my voice today, that they would understand the, the, the commandment that is with promise for them that they may have a fruitful and wonderful life serving you. So, Father, in all of our stations and everywhere where you have put us, may you bless in these things and speak to our hearts in a special way. We'll thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. We're